All right, well, it's good to be here today and good to continue the series that I've been doing. I started a few weeks ago called He Came. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about why did Jesus come? What was his plan and what was his purpose? And a lot of the series has kind of revolved around the scripture from Mark 10, verse 45, that I absolutely love, that says, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. I love this scripture because I think it's so easy to go along your Christian walk and think Jesus came for us to serve him, that it's all about that. But I think this scripture is profound and it's a good reminder to us that Jesus came to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for us. So my message today is going to be on he came to bring us truth. I want to talk about what it means that Jesus came to bring us truth, but I think a better title for this message would actually be Reflections on My Past Weekend. Because as some of you know, last week I was with a bunch of guys in a church on a Dayclorus Men's Weekend Retreat, and the theme of the weekend was called Restored for a Reason, which is an awesome uh, it was an awesome weekend. It was a great time. It was a great theme. And, you know, when Dave asked me to be part of that weekend, of course you're excited, you know, to hang out with Dave and some other people. But, you know, just the whole topic of restoration is always exciting. You want to be part of something that talks about restoration. But, you know, when you talk about restoration, it does bring up two really good questions. Number one is, why do I need to be restored? You know, is there something wrong with me? Is there something that I need restoration over? And another question that we have is, well, what is the reason we are restored for? You know, the whole title of the weekend retreat was Restored for a Reason. And I think sometimes you walk away going, okay, well, what is the reason? Because it's easy to miss that as we go on through life. So I want to spend some time talking about those two questions. Why do we need to be restored and what is the reason? You know, when I got on the weekend, it starts on Thursday night, and I'm kind of asking myself those questions, even like, you know, why am I, God, why do you have me on this weekend? Is there something special you want to do, or do I need to be attentive to hear you talk about this topic? And so when I got on the weekend, and I brought this up in last week's message, so if you were here last week, you know, bear with me for another minute and go have another cookie. But um, I got on the weekend, and there, everybody's walking around carrying these little plastic cups, that say love all and serve all. And I thought, that's really cool. That really makes sense. That's why we're restored. That's the reason, to love all and serve all. And I thought, well, Chelsea, you did a good job. You made cups for the weekend, too, to kind of reinforce the theme. But then somebody turned their cup around, and the other side it said Hard Rock Cafe. So there are obviously some unclaimed freight or something like that. But it was a cool visual to see love all and serve all. And I thought, you know, that would be a really a good model for Lake Effect Church that maybe our tagline could be love all and serve all. But, you know, it is, you know, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And then you tie it into Mark 10, 45, that he came to serve. So right there, good scriptural reason why to say love all and serve all. And so as I thought about that more, and I thought, okay, if I put a marquee, if Grand Valley let me put a marquee in front of the building, said Lake Effect Church, love all and serve all, how would people react? How would people react to a sign in front of a church that says love all and serve all? And, you know, I'm going to be really honest here, and I hope nobody's offended here, but, you know, a lot of times churches that have a low view of the authority of Scripture and a low view 
of the purpose of Scripture often talk about love a lot. It's a great thing to talk about love a lot. But the truth is a lot of churches that talk about love have a low view of Scripture often. And so would I be misunderstood if I put a sign in front that said, love all, serve all? Would people think, well, we're a church maybe that doesn't value the authority of Scripture? Now, ironically, on the other side of the equation, a lot of churches that talk about the value of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, sometimes are not known as being a church that's very loving. That they can often be viewed as a church that is critical. Now, I do recognize I'm talking about extremes this morning. I'm talking about extremes about people with a low view of Scripture or a high view of Scripture. And I know it is not representation of the entire body of Christ. I know people, most people live in the middle. And that's why I'm bringing up this. Because I think a lot of us struggle. How do you show love and how do you show truth at the same time? And I think churches for decades have been trying to, how, how do you do that? How do you be loving and affirming the scripture? And how do you be kind with affirming the scripture? So that's why I'm bringing this up today. How do you display both love and truth at the same time? Because after all, if you want to understand God's purposes for your life, you do need to understand what the truth is. You have to know truth. But at the same time, if you want your life to be transformed, you have to experience the love of God in a powerful way. And God loves through the church and through the community of church. So it's important that we understand the balance of love and truth because love and truth do set people free. So the question is, can a church balance love and truth? And I think we all know the answer, yes, we can. And the big question is, how do you do it? How do you be that church that can be loving and kind at the same time? And so obviously today we're going to look at the life of Jesus and to look what Jesus says about truth and love. Because our problem as a church is not so much that we don't understand the truth as much as sometimes we don't know how to use the truth. How do you use the truth to show love to people? And hopefully today through this message we'll understand more of how to love people with the truth and how to show compassion to people with the, tr- with the truth. And so before we start, I want to read this quote by Preston Sprinkle that I think is pretty powerful. It says, Jesus had a very high standard of truth, yet he loved those who fell short of that standard. Jesus was the embodiment of grace and truth. And so that's why we look to Jesus because how he was able to balance love and truth and love and kindness. So before we can kind of really start to go back and reflect on my weekend of the question of why do I need to be restored and what's the reason, I think we have to go back to the very beginning of Scripture to get a little understanding of why was I even created in the first place? What was my reason from day one? Why did God even bring me into existence? And so you go back to Genesis 1, verse 27, where it all got started, and it says, So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, okay. So we were created in the image of God. Now what? What does all of this even mean? So we're going to go to Wayne Grudem, a very famous systematic theologian, to kind of say, Wayne, what do you think about this scripture? Because he probably knows And I love this statement. He says, the fact that man 
is created in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. So God creates us in his image to be like him and to represent him. Okay, that's pretty powerful. That's pretty significant that a person like me would be created to look like God and to represent him because my initial reaction is, that's probably not going to go so well. And unfortunately, by Genesis 3, it's pretty obvious things are not going to go that well. We know what happened in Genesis 3. So how do you understand that you're created in the image of God to represent God? I think this, uh, in John Piper's book, A Holy Ambition, I I like this quote because I think it kind of puts a few more words to what Wayne Grudem said, maybe a little longer of an explanation because it is overwhelming to think that I'm created to represent God. I think sometimes we hear stuff like that and we're like, yeah, whatever. But I don't think we sit there enough to really absorb what does it mean to represent God. And that's So what does John Piper say? Why did God create man? To show God. He created little images so that they would talk and act and feel in a way that reveals the way God is. So people will look at the way you behave, look at the way you think, the way you feel, and say, God must be great. God must be real. That is why you exist. That people would look at my life and your life as followers of Jesus and say, God must be great. God must be real. That's pretty powerful. That's almost a little intimidating. I'm even up here right now a little intimidated. But that's what we're called to do. So I think kind of answered the question why we need restoration in our life. Because without restoration and wholeness, we might not be the best example of who God is. And some people might look at our life and say, that doesn't look a whole lot, of, that doesn't look very attractive. That's kind of the truth. It's kind of what happens when sin comes into the world. See, when Adam and Eve sinned, suddenly sin became rampant, and the sin and shame that Adam and Eve experienced that day suddenly turned, turned into disease, turned into sickness, turned into challenges that we were never supposed to deal with. But suddenly, because of the original sin, all of us have to deal with something in our life that was never the way it was intended to be. See, I think we understand separation from God pretty well, that we need a Savior to reconcile us to God. After all, we look at what Paul says in Romans 3.10, he says, no one is righteous, not even one. We get that. I get the fact that I'm not righteous and I need Jesus to stand in between me and God and reconcile us. But I think sometimes it's harder for us to grab hold of the fact that sin has had some pretty serious consequences in our life. See, because of sin, the image of God in our life has been distorted. It's not gone. It's not lost. It's just not the way it was ever intended to be. 
So we see because of original sin, suddenly we are all at the same starting point. Every person who's born is at the same starting point that we are all having to deal with the consequences of original sin in our life and in the world's life. Suddenly it's kind of level where we're all starting from because each one of us is going to have to deal with how original sin is going to impact our life or maybe influence our life or maybe in some ways drive our life or dictate our life. So God has a plan to restore so we can be the reflection. And that's why he's restoring us. And see, this is the fun part of Christianity. When God says, I want to restore you to what I planned for you to be from the very beginning. Because that's because that's love. That's love. When a person can be who they were created to be. That's compassion. And see, that's why we're being restored, to get back to God's original plan for us. So how does Jesus do it? What is Jesus going to do to bring us back to his original plan for our lives? Well, he starts with the truth. In John 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. We know the scripture about the truth that's going to set us free. In John 8, verse 32, a very popular verse that says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So what sets you free about the truth? Is it just understanding maybe the rules, the guidelines, what we're supposed to do and not supposed to do? Sure, that's helpful. It's helpful to know more of the Word of God, but part of what the truth does, it helps us understand God's love for each of us. You see, when you understand God's love for each of us, that truth of how much God loves us is what sets us free. In 1 John 4.19, it says, We loved him because he first loved us. What causes our love is that Jesus first loved us. See, God's always the initiator in this. But he comes to us first. In 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. So let's kind of examine this verse a little bit. See, this verse isn't here to bring any condemnation to people. It's not to make you feel guilty, feel bad of the situation that's in your life, but it's more of an instruction from God on what do you do if there's persistent things in your life? You're like, I know this is not good. I know this is sin. I know this is distracting from the image that God has created me to be. What do I do with those things in my life when I'm doing the things I don't want to do? And I think this verse really helps us understand a little bit more what we need to do. See, this verse is helping us to understand that the more you understand and receive God's love for you, the more it's going to drive out your desire to love sin or maybe love some habit that you're involved in. 
The scripture is telling us that we have to replace the desire in our life for sin with God's love for us. I think sometimes we think, okay, now how am I going to do that? What do I need to do next? And I think we go back to John 8. Jesus is always the initiator in this thing called love. He's the one who initiates salvation. He initiates restoration. He initiates wholeness. He is always there to restore what has been lost. If you're ever feeling any conviction over sin or conviction over what you're doing, you're starting to feel guilt or condemnation or I'm less than or I'm not good enough, the fact that you have some conviction over your sin means the Holy Spirit is working in your life. It's not natural to get up and to say, oh, I'm dealing with this sin and say, oh, I want to stop it. That means the power of God is working in your life. The same power of God that can convict you of sin is the power of God that's going to lead you to freedom. But it's always about going back to receiving the love that God has for each of us. And that's what he's doing. We can't stir up, okay, I feel more love from God. I can't stir up trying to get God to love me anymore. He loves me. I am just simply the recipient of the love that he has for me. And so when we understand how God treats people and the love he shows people, it helps us to better understand how do we love people. So when we look at the gospel, Jesus had this tendency to be really good friends with a lot of people that most people would say, that's not a good choice. Jesus loved sinners. He loved tax collectors. He loved drunks. He loved gluttons. The Bible talks about Jesus was a friend of sinners, and it doesn't take long to read through the gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, to figure out that Jesus truly did like hanging out with people, that their lives really weren't a good reflection of who God was. But Jesus always started by showing love and acceptance. And when Jesus shows love and acceptance, it always leads a person to repentance and obedience. He always leads with love and, rep- love and acceptance. And love and acceptance always leads a person to obedience. I think sometimes in our culture, it's easy to kind of lead with fear, to lead with shame, and to think that's going to change a person. But fear and shame, that might change maybe a little while, but not long term. Love and acceptance was Jesus used over and over again through the scripture. See, Jesus was always more concerned with a person's heart than with their behavior. Because he knew when he had their heart, everything else is going to follow. In your heart is where sin is born or where sin stays. And Jesus was always concerned with transforming hearts. So why did Jesus do it this way? In Romans 2 verse 4 it says, and I love this verse, Don't you see how wonderfully kind tolerant and patient God is with you. I just got to read that again. It's so good. Don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? Kindness, tolerance, his patience, is all designed with his love to turn you from your sins. 
See, God's not mad at people. God loves people. God's concerned with people. God's whole mission from sending Jesus was to save the helpless. And we're all the helpless. We can't get saved on our own. He simply has to come in. So why do we get this wrong sometimes? Why sometimes do we as a church sometimes forget to lead with love and acceptance? Why sometimes do we get that wrong? I think sometimes our definition of truth gets us into a little trouble. I think sometimes when we talk about truth, it's easy to think truth means discipline or correction. I think perhaps sometimes if we change the whole idea of thinking about it as discipline or correction, think about truth as support. Think about truth as something that comes in your life to support you and to elevate you, to take you from the place that you're at and raise you up to be the place where God designed for you to be. I think sometimes it's helpful to use the word support. See, 20 years ago, Becky and I entered into the world of special education when our oldest son, Nicholas, was about a year old. And Nick's not here. He's home with a caregiver. And so suddenly our lives changed as we went from... Lives changed from having to learn this whole new field of special education. We learned new terms and new technologies, new procedures, new testing... Nick was about a year and a half when we figured out things are a little different here, and so we, you right away start education when your child's a year and a half, and you start to figure out something's a little bit different. And so what every child does with special needs is they have an IEP. IEP stands for Individualized Education, Educational Program. And so every year we're always coming up with a new IEP for Nick and we're kind of always updating it and changing it and uh, modifying it. And part of a good IEP is you basically lay out with the teacher and the classroom and the school district what your goal is for that student. So we'll start at the beginning of the year with Nick and we lay down what do we want to see him progress to at the end of the year. Where do we want Nick to be at the end of the year? And what does he need? Does he need OT? Does he need PT? Does he need speech? Does he need more exercise? What is going to help Nick the most to become what he needs to be? And so you try to come up with realistic goals and real good realistic expectations. And you talk about the process to get Nick from the situation he's in to the situation he needs to be in. Now, Nick is a very, very tricky student. He has a lot of struggles and challenges that most students have that go anywhere from eloping, which means you always have to plan to make sure he doesn't leave the room and bolt from the school because he's done that a few times. Tricky little kid. Good rabbit trail here. Well, there's... Well, he won't get back. So, Nick is good at escaping. He's in this contained classroom, and that little kid found his way out of the classroom and disappeared. That was not a fun phone call to get when you see the helicopters are flying over your neighborhood looking for him, and they got dogs out looking for him. But Nick's an escaper, so part of his plan at school is how do you keep an eye on Nick every single minute? And we talk about what Nick's goals are for everything. Now, one thing that you will never, ever find on any IEP 
is a punishment protocol. You don't find the word punishment. You don't find the word discipline. You find the word support all through the IEP. How are you going to support the student to make the accomplishments that you desire? How are you going to support the student when suddenly they're engaging in unwanted behavior? The whole gear of an IEP is all about supporting Nick. And I think as a church, that's where truth comes in our lives. Truth is designed to support us. It's designed to come underneath us and to help us to become what God has created us to be. It's designed... to come in and to lift us out of any challenges or any circumstances or any unwanted behaviors or any unwanted things that are going on in your life. That's the beauty of a support plan. You always know what the goal is and how do you get the person there. You know, before the service, I was talking with Ron, and he made another good point. Is Sometimes we look at the word discipline, and probably we should focus a little bit more on the word disciple. Because what a disciple does is takes the truth and helps support a person to become what you need to be. And I think that's a beautiful, works well in my analogy, so it's really good. Because a teacher in the situation is like a disciple who's going to help disciple another person to elevate them and raise them up to help them to become who God has created them to be. And I appreciate a good support plan. It does really well. It works well for Nick, and I think that's probably why I like 12-step programs so well, because it is a support program to help take a person from where they at to where they need to be. In Romans 5, verse 8, I think it's a verse that we can easily forget, but it's powerful, that says, But God, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. I think we forget that he sent Christ to die for us while we are sinners. It's often, it's easy to forget the point that God is always the initiator. He's the initiator of our salvation, the initiator of our love and our restoration. In 1 John 4.10, it kind of reiterates this point. It says, this is real love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Again, just reinforces the idea that God always makes the first move. No matter the situation you're in that you're dealing with, if you feel conviction and you feel you want to change, that is the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life to bring around real change. One of the best stories in the Bible that shows Jesus' love for sinners is the story of Zacchaeus. I want, to, I want to close with that today, talking about Zacchaeus and kind of what we see in how Jesus treated Zacchaeus. So let's read it first. Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. After Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. 
I must be a guest at your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in, a great excite, in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He has gone to be with a guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that were lost. This is a pretty powerful story or pretty powerful parable that shows how Jesus dealt with sinners. See, tax collectors in those days are notorious sinners. They're despised by the community. In the community, people thought tax collectors are so bad they, have, they had a different set of rules for how you deal with tax collectors. They thought you could blow off tax collectors. They thought it was socially acceptable to be mean and unkind to tax collectors because tax collectors were viewed as traitors and thieves. See, this is how tax collectors worked. The, the, the Roman Empire kept taking over and over more and more land and occupied more land and took control over it. So when Rome took over a piece of land or a country or a city, they had to send in people to collect taxes from the locals. So the Roman officials knew that if they sent in a Roman official into Jericho to try to tax the area, that maybe a, a, a person from the outside wouldn't understand how the economy worked in Jericho. So what they tried to do is find a native from Jericho to be the tax collector. Because a native of Jericho would know kind of the ins and outs and how the economic system in Jericho was working. So they would find a local, a native from the area, and they would say to this native, okay, you want to be the tax collector. We need this amount of money annually from Jericho. So you collect that amount of money and anything else that you want to collect. Anything over what we need, you keep. And to help you get that money, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a bunch of soldiers that are going to go with you wherever you go, and they're going to reinforce whatever you say. So if you go to a business and you want to charge double, three times, four times the tax rate, you go for it. It's up to you because you have this army that's going to reinforce it. So that's how tax collectors got away with being so corrupt. They had a little army behind them. They would actually kill people. You don't pay the taxes, we're going to kill you. So obviously killing is a good motive to pay your taxes. So that's why tax collectors were so hated. Because everybody knew that they were taking advantage of people. And so they were notorious for being very unkind. And so everybody knew it. So when Jesus is coming into town and Zacchaeus is up in a tree looking at Jesus, everybody's wondering why in the world would Jesus want to have lunch with a tax collector? And that's what they said. They were right. He's gone to be at the guest of a notorious sinner. It's easy to do that. You know, probably if I was there, I'd probably say the same question. Wait a minute. Why aren't you like having lunch with some nice people from the church? Why aren't you doing that? But you're going to hang out with a notorious sinner? I mean, that does sound like the voice of reason right there to say, that's not a good idea, Jesus. But yet that is who Jesus decides to have lunch with. That is a person who Jesus decides to go to his house with. 
And see, back in that day, in the culture of that day, said if you went to somebody's house and had a meal with them, that meant you're accepting of them. So that's why all these people are wondering, why would Jesus have lunch with a notorious sinner? Because if he's having lunch with him, that means he's accepting of the way this man lives. So is Jesus, why is Jesus doing this? Was he approving of Zacchaeus' lifestyle? I think you see what happens in this story. You see what happens is that we've not told a lot of what happens over the discussion at lunch, what happens in Zacchaeus' house. But we do notice what change happened after Zacchaeus spent time with the Lord and after he felt the love and acceptance of the Lord, he came out and said, I'm going to refund people. In fact, I'm not just going to refund what I did, what was wrong. I'm going to go way beyond it. The law did not require that Zacchaeus would refund four times. But Zacchaeus did it because his heart was changed by the Lord. When the Lord showed him love and acceptance and compassion, Zacchaeus' heart was changed. I love how J.D. Greer says this, and I'm going to kind of close with what he said. He says, Jesus was teaching Zacchaeus the difference between religion and the gospel. He was showing him the difference between religion and the gospel. See, religion points outward and says, Zacchaeus, you need to go home and stop your naughty behavior, and then maybe you can be saved. But see, the gospel message of Jesus comes in, and it says, Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house. Salvation has come for you. You just need to walk in it freely. It's a gift from God. And in response to the gospel coming into your house and you freely receiving it, your life's going to be changed. You're just responding to what God's doing for you. But see, religion says... You need to change. You need to clean up your act. And then God will accept you. That's what religion says. And I'll be honest, sometimes that plays in my head too. You just clean up. You get your life together. And then God will accept you. But that is not the gospel message of love. See, the gospel reverses it and always says, God has offered acceptance to you in light of God's invitation, then you change. That's how change happens, a response. See, in the gospel, God's acceptance is not the reward for having cleaned up your life. It's the power to actually clean up. That's what the gospel does when it comes into your life. That's what happens when truth is balanced with love. You get the power to actually change because God's the one driving it. We need to focus more on God's acceptance of us. We need to focus more on God's acceptance of us instead of just focusing just on what is sin in our life. We need to focus more on acceptance because that gives us the power to change. Let me close in prayer while the worship team comes up and leads us in one more song.
Father, I do thank you for the gospel message. The gospel message that freely comes into our house and says, here's a gift. All you need to do is accept the gift and walk in it and you're going to see your life changed. Lord, sometimes it seems too easy. God, I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would help us all to grasp the simplicity of your gospel message of love and compassion. Lord, it's hard because sometimes in our head, religion seems to be louder that says, clean up your act and then God will accept you. God, I pray that you would just bring healing and restoration to any person here that believes that they have to clean up their act in order for you to love them, in order for you to accept them. Father, I thank you that your acceptance of us was settled years ago when Jesus got on the cross and he died in our place. Father, I pray that each person will leave here today knowing maybe in a little deeper way, a little bit bigger of a way, how much you actually love us and how much compassion you have for us. Help us to understand more today, Lord, on how you want us to be restored and you want us to be a reflection of you. Lord, would you help us to really grasp that? That, Lord, that's bigger than I could probably articulate. But Lord, we thank you for your gift of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray any person here that's just struggling and just feels, but I just still don't feel accepted, that you'd minister to them. And may they leave here today knowing how much you love them, or maybe, maybe just beginning to understand how much you love them. In Jesus' name.